Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Everybody raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. All right. <laughs> good morning, y'all. It's uh, good to be with you. Um, hey, my name is Garrison, and I'm the, the pastor here at Veritas Dayton. If this is your first time here. We're glad that you're here. Welcome. Um, let's open our Bibles, Galatians 6. Galatians 6. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 18. We are finishing up our um, 25-week series in Paul's letter to the Galatians this morning, um, as well as celebrating our one-year anniversary, uh, celebrating uh, God's faithfulness and grace toward us as a church family. Uh, there's a lot to, to celebrate here. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can take one of those uh, white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench, grab one of those, turn to page 567, uh, and that will get you where you need to go, Galatians 6, 11 through 18. 11 through 18. But now, uh, before we dig into our text, I want to take a few moments to pray. Uh, pray particularly for those affected uh, by Hurricane Harvey and then those that are in the path of, of Irma um, that will be facing, preparing to face Irma very shortly. Um, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.1, and he said, I urge that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Uh, and so we want to offer supplication and prayer and intercession for all those affected by these storms. Uh, but in particular, we're, we're actually networked with several churches uh, in Florida that are uh, in Irma's Path and, and another church in Beaumont, Texas uh, that is facing um, uh, quite a bit of uh, difficulties in the aftermath of Harvey, so I want to just take a few moments and, and pray to the Lord um, on their behalf. So if you would bow your heads with me, uh, and let's, let's pray together before we open the word. Father and protector of the helpless and needy, we come to you with heavy hearts for all those that have been affected or will be affected by these two storms. There are many who have been seriously affected by Harvey and many more who will likely be seriously affected by Irma. Some have lost loved ones. Some have been seriously injured. Some have lost homes, property, or employment. And some face the possibility of the same as, as Irma approaches, Lord. And so we ask you for mercy and comfort. We ask that, that you would provide shelter and aid for these communities. We ask you that you would give strength and endurance to those who seek to bring relief and care to devastated lives and injured bodies and broken hearts. We ask you that you would give governing authorities wisdom to protect the vulnerable and to maintain good order in those areas affected by the storms. And most of all, we, we pray for churches in these areas that, that you would help them to pour out their lives in service to their communities, those who are able to do so. Specifically, we want to lift up Sojourn Church in Beaumont, Texas, Lord. 
as they are seeking to assist and help many in the community with tearing down homes and rebuilding homes and, and seeking to provide for the basic needs of many who have lost uh, pretty much everything. We ask you for supernatural sustain, uh, sustainment of, of uh, their abilities and and faculties for them to love and care for and serve their community. Give them wisdom, provide them with necessary resources. Give wisdom and courage to the pastors and, and deacons as they seek to provide uh, physical and, and, and spiritual support for those who are broken and hurting and lost, those who have lost homes, belongings, possibly even loved ones. We also ask for protection for particular churches in Florida, for Redemption Church in Miami, and for Summit Church in Naples. We ask, Lord, that you would keep the people of these churches safe from, from serious damage and destruction of their homes and church buildings. And, and we ask, Lord, that those who opted to stay, that you would keep them safe from injury and, and death. Would you bless them and keep them and make your face shine upon them and give them peace Lord, and protect them and hold them in your sovereign hand. Would you do so in order that they may in turn be a blessing to those around them, to their neighbors who have lost homes and property and employment and, and loved ones, and those who have faced injury, those who are affected by the storm and its aftermath. Would you give them peace? Would you give them courage? Would you give them wisdom, Father? For all those affected by these storms, have mercy, Lord. Show us how to lovingly and mercifully and justly respond to such tragedy and help us to be steadfast in prayer. And Father, as we open your word now, we praise you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you, Father, uh, because we don't live by bread alone, but by every mouth that comes from, from uh, for every word that comes from your mouth. We, we thank you uh, for speaking to us and we ask that you would feed us now, feed us with your word, sustain us with your word. Lord, help us to behold the beauty, the excellence, the, the glory of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the cross be... Uh, publicly portrayed here. Let Jesus Christ be publicly portrayed as crucified here in our midst as we open your word, Lord. And would you, as that is done, so transform us by the gospel of your grace that we may live for your glory and for the good of our neighbors. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, let's dig in to Galatians 6, 11 through 18. If you would stand with me as we read God's word, we stand because we want to give attention to God's word and, and listen with reverence and with joy. Because we believe that this is the voice of our God speaking to us. These are spirit-inspired words. God is speaking these to us. So, so hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to you, church. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. 
It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. You can have a seat. As we close our time together in Galatians, let's remember what it is we've been digging into for the last 24, 25 weeks. Uh, we often refer to it as the book of Galatians, and that's just kind of a general description that we give to the uh, the various writings, the, the library of writings that uh, are within the Bible. Uh, we say there are 66 books of the Bible, and uh, that's totally fine. But to be more specific about Galatians, it's a letter. It's a letter. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to these local churches in Galatia. Uh, there were uh, a small uh, number of small churches in Galatia, probably the southern region of Galatia, and they probably, uh, they, they would have met in homes, likely, uh, in these churches. They would have each had their own uh, pastor or several pastors, and, and they would have gathered early on the first day of every week to um, receive communion together and to pray together and sing together and hear teaching together. Uh, it, it would have looked a lot like what we do at our gatherings. And, and this letter, this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians would have circulated throughout these uh, churches, these, these local, these several uh, churches in the area. And uh, they, they probably would have read this letter uh, in their gatherings. Uh, you know, they, they, didn't, they didn't have uh, video streaming or FaceTime or, or email or or Word documents, or printers, or any of that. And so they had one letter, and this letter would have circulated throughout these churches, and they would have read it uh, together on uh, Sunday morning when they gathered together. And so you can picture it, you know, a, a small church, uh, probably even smaller than Veritas, gathered uh, in, in someone's house, in a room in someone's house, and it's probably very, very early, like way earlier than, than when we gather. And so the sun is probably not very high in the, in the sky yet. And so there's probably candles in the room. And, and they, they get together, they, they sing and they pray. And then um, the, one of the pastors will get up and, and he'll open this letter. And he will read this letter to the congregation from the Apostle Paul. And this letter, it begins with Paul defending his apostleship, his authority within the church of God to declare and define the gospel. Uh, and, then, and then he kind of moves to unpacking the, the uh, doctrines of the gospel and, and declaring to the church that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in, in Christ alone. And then he gets to, toward the end of the letter and he starts talking about the implications of this gospel for how the church is to live life together, how they're supposed to love one another and care for one another and, and serve one another. 
And then we come to the closing of the letter, and the pastor would have read these words. He would have said, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. And after reading the sentence, he probably would have paused and held up the letter for everyone to see so that they could see the the large letters that Paul was writing with. And what this would have communicated to the churches when they read and saw these words is is something like, pay attention, listen up, listen to what I'm about to say to you. You know, Paul Paul would have been dictating this letter to a secretary who would have, you know, been uh, hastily writing all these things down as I'm assuming Paul is pacing back and forth in a room and and speaking, preaching the gospel uh, as it's to be written down in this letter and sent to the Galatians. And, And then all of a sudden, he's about to close the letter And typically, he would just walk over and maybe sign his name, but he walks over, he grabs that reed pen, and he writes, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. And what he's saying is he wants to emphasize these closing words to the Galatians. He wants to emphasize, it's sort of like an exclamation point at the end of the letter. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. He's emphasizing, similar to, to if you know, when you text someone and you want to emphasize something, you, you put it on all caps, you press a little button twice, right, that, that makes it go into all capital letters. Or, or if you're sending a message on uh, email or, or Slack, I think that's probably more common now, you, you put the, the letters in bold, you underline them, you, you want to communicate, this is what I'm emphasizing to you. That's what Paul is doing here. He's calling their attention to the closing words of this letter as they summarize what the entirety of the letter is about. They summarize the entirety of what the the letter's all about. And the boldness of his handwriting here answers to the force of his convictions of what he's saying. It's it's supposed to arrest the attention of the readers of this letter. And what he emphasizes to these Galatians is what I want to emphasize to you this morning. And and, and not just this morning, this is really what I want uh, the the entirety, the emphasis of our church to be in in my role in preaching here in this church. I I want this to be our emphasis. You know, this is our our one-year anniversary. We're celebrating one year of publicly gathering at Ruskin Elementary at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, one year of God's faithfulness to us as a church family, one year. And what what I'm hoping you have heard over this one year and what I'm praying you hear for the entirety of the existence of this church is what Paul says in this letter, the cross of Christ is the only boast of the people of God. The cross of Christ is the only boast of the crucified people of God. May this always be said of us, Veritas. May the cross be our only boast glory. May the cross of Jesus Christ be what dominates our vision. May the cross of Jesus Christ be the message we continually and habitually hear with clarity and conviction. May the cross of Jesus Christ be what we continually testify to with our lips and with our lives. May the cross be our only boast. To boast in the cross was the chief aim of this letter from Paul, what we've been looking at over the last six months. It was the chief aim of his entire ministry. But as we see in verses 12 to 13, the same couldn't be said about these false teachers. These false teachers that crept into the churches of Galatia, and Paul exposes them for what they are. He writes, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only 
in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So as we saw in, throughout the letter, and particularly in, in Galatians 4.19, Paul, you know, he's in anguish over the state of these Galatian churches. He's writing to them out of deep care and concern. You know, he, he loved these people deeply. Remember, he, he preached these churches into existence. He, 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 he spent time with these people. He observed communion with these people. He stayed in these people's homes and ate meals with them and prayed with them and suffered with them and spent much time with them. And, and so he, he is concerned. He loves them. But after he left, some, some Jewish Christians, these Jewish Christian missionaries came in to do some follow-up work amongst the churches that Paul planted. And remember, we've been calling them Judaizers, the Judaizers. And there are a few things that we've learned about the Judaizers throughout this letter. We saw that they're very religious, a very religious group of, of people, and that they, they tried to add to the gospel. They tried to add to the gospel. We saw that they probably came from Jerusalem. Uh, they had connections with the mother church in Jerusalem. That's where Paul first came into conflict with them. And we saw that, as Paul says here, they were forcing the Galatians to be circumcised, particularly the Gentile Christians in Galatia. They, they wanted to Judaize these Galatian Christians. They persuaded the Galatians to accept circumcision. They, they taught that circumcision is what brought them into right relationship with God and his people. Uh, the, the group's official position is stated really clearly in, in Acts 15.1, where they said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was their official position. They saw it and they taught it as a prerequisite for full salvation in Christ Jesus. To, to put it simply, they were claiming that for one to be saved, they had to become a Jew first. Okay, so to be genuinely united to Christ, in addition to faith, they saw that you needed circumcision. They believed that you needed circumcision. They denied that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone and declared that what was needed was grace, faith, Christ, and circumcision, which of course corrupts the message of the gospel and undermines the sufficiency of the cross. And Paul unmasks their true motivations for doing this. They didn't truly care for the Galatians. They didn't truly have their best interest at heart. Rather, what they truly cared about were themselves. They wanted to, as Paul puts it, make a uh, good showing in the flesh and, and only that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, one of the things we often forget is that early on in the, in the history of the church, much of the persecution that the church faced was at the hands of, of Jewish people. Read Acts, the first arrests, the first beatings, the first martyrdom, Stephen the deacon came from the hands of the people of the nation of Israel. And of course, as the church spread throughout the world and the Roman Empire, uh, the, the persecution spread from the, the Jewish people, spread with the church as they were also scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And their reasons for persecuting the church at the time were numerous, uh, but one of the biggest reasons is, is because in these newly found communities, these newly found local churches, Jews and Gentiles would be fellowshipping together and, and claiming to be the new covenant people of God together. And so the, Judaiz the Judaizers, these, this group of Jewish Christians, devised a plan. They figured out that it was actually pretty easy to avoid persecution. 
They would just compel Gentile Christians to be circumcised and to follow the, the Jewish calendar system and to become Jewish. And what Paul puts his finger on here is the motive behind the Judaizers doing this. They were doing this because in their heart of hearts, they wanted to be accepted by others. They wanted to be accepted by these unbelieving Jews. And remember, what, what we've been looking at throughout Galatians 3, the, the main thrust of what Galatians, the, the question that Galatians is, is answering for us is how we can be accepted by God. That's, that, that really is the quest of, of every religion. Every religion has an answer for this. Every religion is asking this same basic question. You go, you know, they, and there's all sorts of answers. You can go through these certain ceremonies. You, 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 you achieve a certain level of morality. You do certain deeds in order to be accepted by God. How, how can I be accepted by God? That's the fundamental question in most world religions. And the answer that Galatians gives, the answer that the Bible gives as a whole is nothing. You can do nothing to be accepted by God. You can do nothing in your own righteousness, in your own goodness to be accepted by God. You, you don't deserve this and you can't earn it. Rather, the only way to be accepted by God is forsaking your own righteousness and your own goodness and resting on the righteousness and goodness of Jesus. That's the answer that Galatians gives. That's the main question it's addressing. But realize, as Paul realizes here, that that's not the most important question to everyone. How can I be accepted by God is not the most fundamental question to everyone. The most fundamental question often in the hearts of men and women is how can I be accepted by others? How can I make others accept me? Deep in the recesses of the human heart, that's often what is there. How, how can I get others to think highly of me? How can I get others to, to have a high view of me, to think I'm a good person? How can I be accepted by others? And you've got to realize, if that's the fundamental question in your heart, you will never understand the cross. The cross just won't make sense. You'll never boast in the cross. You can still understand it doctrinally, of course, and you can still understand it as a historical event, but you'll never base your life on it. You'll, it it'll never make you sing, right? If the most fundamental longing of your heart is being accepted by others, you won't boast in the cross, you won't find it beautiful, you'll only belittle it. And we would do well to realize, Christian, that, that we're most certainly not immune to this. Maybe the thought of what other people think keeps you up at night. Maybe, maybe this anxiety of what others think cripples you at times. And I would just remind you, as I know you already know, but the acceptance of others will never satisfy you. Only the blessing, only the acceptance of God will do that. The acceptance of others will not satisfy your soul. Only the voice, only the welcome of the, of the triune God, only the voice of God declaring you to be righteous in his sight can do that. Only Christ welcoming you into resurrection life can do that. Only the voice of God saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. As 
those words res resound from the voice of your Savior. Only that can give you true satisfaction, true delight. Only that can give you satisfaction that can never be shaken. Paul knew this, and that's why he goes on. Writing with his own hand, may it never be. That's, that's the strongest negative statement possible in the Greek language. King Jimmy translation says, God forbid. May it never be that I should boast. And to boast in something means to glory in it, means to exalt, to rejoice, to, to magnify, to stand in complete awe of, to praise, to, to, to glorify. It means to make much of something. Paul is saying, I boast in, I glory in, I trust in, I, I revel in, I live for the cross. It, it fills my mind. I, 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 I'm captivated by the cross. It absorbs all my time and energy. I'm completely obsessed with the cross of Christ. At the Urbana Missions Conference in 1958, Billy Graham um, read this letter from a young communist to his fiancée breaking off their engagement. It really typifies this, this kind of boasting. The letter goes like this. We communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and lynched and tarred and feathered and jailed and slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have time or, or money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes and new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. Listen to this. There's one thing in which I am dead earnest, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, even a conversation without relating to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before the firing squad. What is that? That's, that's boasting. That's boasting. This man exalts in. He, he is defined by, he is captivated by. He is obsessed with communism. And his life demonstrates 
this because he sacrifices for it. He suffers for it. He forsakes all for it. This is a clear example of what the Apostle Paul means here by to boast in. Now, what is, what is the object of Paul's great obsession? What is the object of his boast? What is the object of his glory? You know, typically the things we view as worthy of boasting about are, are our strengths, our education, our morals, our religious deeds, our job status, our nationality, our good motives, our athletic abilities, our outstanding achievements, our possessions, our financial status. Doubt, doubtless, Paul could have, he could have boasted in any number of things. You know, Paul was, he was highly educated. He, he studied under one of, the, one of the foremost philosophers, Jewish philosophers of the day, one of the most brilliant minds of the day. He went to university in Tarsus, which was a big deal. He was a Roman citizen. His morality and his religious achievement as a Hebrew of Hebrews would have impressed anyone. But he didn't boast in any of these things. The object of his boast was this and this alone, the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't hit our ears the same way it would have amongst the citizens of Rome in the first century they would have heard those words that I just said. They would have gasped and, and been horrified. In the ancient world, the cross was, was the most shameful of deaths. Roman citizens actually wouldn't even say the word crucify or, or cross. Instead, when, when someone was heading to their crucifixion, they would say, they're on their way to hang on that unlucky tree. It was, it was excruciating and gruesome and shameful and humiliating. It was disgusting. The one condemned to die, they, they would be beaten mercilessly and, and stripped completely naked, and, and they would be hung on the cross by nailing their hands and feet to a piece of wood, and then they would raise up that cross for, for crowds to see and mock as the one condemned to die, the criminal hung there naked, gasping for air, excrement and urine running down their legs. In a day where crosses are made to be jewelry and fixed on top of church buildings and put on t-shirts, this doesn't hit our ears in the same way. You know, it'd be like Paul saying today that, that let, let me only boast in the electric chair and the hangman's noose. Or as co the cotton patch paraphrase of the Bible paraphrases this verse this way. It says, God forbid that I should ever take pride in anything except in the lynching of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross was an object of shame and humiliation, but it was also the object of Paul's obsession. He was captivated by it. 1 Corinthians 2.2, he says that when he went to Corinth, that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, he, he didn't try to impress them with his soaring intellect and, and communication skills. He, he didn't try to manipulate them with like fog machines and light shows and rocking bands. He didn't, he didn't do any of that. He decided to know nothing among them but the weakness, but the foolishness, but the shameful instrument of execution, the cross and the Christ who was crucified for it, on it for our sins. 
And he did this because, as, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, that cross is the power of salvation for all who believe. You see, because the cross is, is not to Paul. It's not just this, this past event that was far removed from present day life. It wasn't just a historical event that took place a long time ago. It, it, it is that, of course. And, and it's an important that, that we remember that the cross was a public historical event that truly took place. But the cross isn't just a past event. It also has very present power. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And here in in Galatians 6.14, by the cross of Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul saw Christ's death, the Christian's forgiveness, the the Christian's own death, Christian's own death to the world and to sin. That's, That's what Paul saw in Christ's death. Christian, it's, it's as if you were hanging on the cross beams with Christ when he was crucified. Paul taught and preached what we call our, our union with Christ. And what that means, Christian, is that you are in Christ and Christ is in you, which also means that you are united with him in his death. Therefore, when Christ died, you practically died with him. And when you died with him, the sinfulness of the world became as a corpse to you and you as a corpse to the world. We, we, we died to the corruptions and the, and the values and the fleshly ways of this passing age. We, we don't value the things that we used to value. The things that seem silly to us now are, are sacred. That's what Paul means when he says that he died to the world. And not only that, but the world with its, with its values and boasts died to us. The world doesn't understand Paul. The world doesn't understand why a man would suffer beatings and stoning and imprisonment all for the sake of this condemned man who was crucified in Jerusalem all those years ago. The world doesn't understand Paul. Paul doesn't make sense to the world. And church, I, I wonder if our lives make sense to the world, to those outside of our faith. I wonder if the way that we order and live our lives demonstrates that we believe the cross is a present power. Do do, do we ever get questions like, why would you forgive that person for doing that thing to you? Or or why do you pray and read the Bible with your family every night? That seems like a waste of time. Why are you always talking about Jesus? Why do you sacrifice so much for that church community? Why do you serve those that can do nothing in return for you? Because those who live in the power of the cross, the puzzling, even baffling to those that don't know its power. We saw this a couple years ago in, in Charleston, South Carolina. Dylan Roof, he walked into Emmanuel African uh, Methodist Episcopal Church in downtown Charleston. They were just having a prayer meeting. And Roof, a, a white supremacist, walks in, shoots and kills nine people. Says he, he did it in hopes of starting a race war. And do you know the, the response of that church community? The response of that church community was forgiveness. They, they forgave him. They, they literally told him that they forgive him. And I love the response of the media and the community No one knows what to do with that. 
Some people got angry over it. So, so, no one knows what, the world did not understand. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And we need to be especially mindful of, of, of this. You know, in the West, we, we enjoy life of, of uh, freedom, free from persecution. We, we enjoy enormous comforts. It's easy for us then to, use, to, to view the cross, not, not as the narrow path on which to trod, not, not as a present power, not as an instrument of execution, but simply as a prop for our self-improvement projects, which is really, I think, more common than we'd like to think. The, the general attitude I've, I've uh, personally experienced among many professing Christians and non-Christians toward Christianity is that it doesn't really matter if all this stuff is true. It doesn't, doesn't really matter as long as it makes you a better person. As long as it helps you in your self-improvement project. Because what, ha- what, what, what counts is the, self-improve, uh, the, the self-improvement, right? What counts is, is personal achievement. What counts is becoming a better person, right? No. The, the cross is not about self-improvement. The cross is not about making us better people. The cross is not about making us moral. The cross is about making us new. The, the cross rescues us from death into life. It rescues us from, from the world into the Israel of God. It, it rescues us from this corrupt world and saves us into God's new creation. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything but a new creation, Paul says. Are are you seeing this? The cross isn't about self-improvement. It's about death and resurrection. What counts is not self-made, self-improvement religion of circumcision and law and the American middle class. What counts is a new creation. Self-improvement cannot save us. Circumcision cannot save us. What counts is the inward transformation by which the Holy Spirit makes you into an entirely new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what counts. Being regenerated, being born again, being rescued into God's new creation project that he ushered in through the cross and resurrection of Christ Jesus, being filled with the spirit of the living God, adopted into God's family, becoming a citizen of the Israel of God, walking in the spirit, crucifying the flesh with all of its passions and desires. That's what really counts. And as for all who walk by this rule, Paul says, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. This is a blessing specifically for cross boasters. Peace and mercy. Peace between Jew and Gentile and mercy from God for the forgiveness of sins. It's a blessing specifically for cross boasters. It's, it's conditional. It's for all those who walk by this rule, this rule of salvation through the cross alone. You know, a rule, and the way that Paul is communicating this here, a rule is like a norm or, or a principle. It was, it was the standard by which one determines who is in or out of the family of God. 
who's in or out of the Israel of God. For the Judaizers, circumcision was the rule. But for the true family of faith, for the true Israel of God, the standard is the cross and the cross alone. We need to move on. We're running out of time. We'll close here, looking at verse 17. We see Paul walked by this rule. He had the scars to prove it. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. These, These false teachers in Galatia had accused Paul of softening the message of the gospel and being a people pleaser. And so he says, yeah, the the scars from my my lashings with with the whip and and the scars from my being stoned uh, for preaching the cross of Christ say otherwise, right? They're the brand that proves I'm a slave of Christ. They're my medals of honor that prove that I preach the cross without compromising. Don't cause me any more trouble with that nonsense. But we would do well to heed these words as well, because, listen, everyone who died with Christ, everyone who is united with Christ, who is united with him in his death on the cross, must also live for the cross. And everyone who lives for the cross will face opposition in this life. And some will even bear the marks of Jesus on their body. You know, I, I hope and pray that, that some of you hear and answer the call to go to unreached people groups for the sake of missions, preaching the gospel, boasting in the cross. You know, e- even where persecution and martyrdom are a possibility, now I'm praying that some of you hear that call and heed that call, obey that call to go. I'm hoping and praying that some of your kids' parents will be brought up being so serious about the cross, hearing their parents boast in the cross continually that they want to go to unreached people groups and preach the gospel, even if it means that they might bear on their body the marks of Jesus. I would consider that a success for our church. On our one-year anniversary, that means I would consider that a success for the church. Even if 20 years from now, we have less people sitting in this room because, because many people were sent off to unreached people groups to preach the gospel and give their lives to boasting in the cross of those who have never heard. I would count that as a success. But the call to live for the cross is not just for those going to the unreached. It's for everyone who's in Christ. And if you think of these marks as tangible, visible evidences that we live for the cross, we would do well to ask ourselves, do we in any way bear these marks? Is our identification with Christ and his people so real that it becomes costly to us? If we look at our calendar and take inventory of our schedules, the way we spend and prioritize our time, do we see the marks of Jesus? When we take a look at our budgets and the way we spend our money, do we see the marks of Jesus? Will our children one day testify to the reality that their parents bore the marks of Christ Jesus? Would our friends and neighbors and coworkers testify to the reality that we follow a crucified and suffering Savior? 
Do our lives bear the marks of Jesus? Listen, the Christian life is a painful life. It's, it is a painful life because it's a sacrificial life. And a life that's not sacrificial could hardly be considered Christian. The Christian life is shaped by, formed by, patterned after, defined by the cross. The Christian life is boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ with the crucified people of God. In a minute, we're, we're going to sing, uh, as we survey the cross, forbid it, Lord, that we should boast, save in the death of Christ our Lord. All the vain things that charmed us most, we sacrifice them. We sacrifice them to his blood. We sacrifice them. It's, it's painful. We sacrifice. Is our life as a community, a cross-shaped life, is it defined by the cross? Paul's letter to the Galatians ends the same way that it began, with grace. It begins with a greeting of grace and mercy, and it ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. But friends, this grace is not cheap. It's not cheap grace. It costs Christ his blood. It costs Christ his life. And it propels us, forms us into being a crucified people that boast in the cross of Christ. And so as we end the series, as we celebrate our one-year anniversary, take a few moments to consider. Is your life a cross-shaped Life. Have you lost and found yourself in the cross? Have you, have you lost and found yourself in the cross of Christ? Are you boasting in the cross of Christ with your life and bearing the marks of Jesus? Are you banking on the cross? If so, then may this blessing be yours. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you let the cross be our only boast as a community? Would you let us bear the marks of Jesus to pick up our crosses daily, crucify our flesh with all of its passions and desires, and to walk in step with your spirit, to walk according to this new creation rule, to walk in this rule of, of salvation and the cross alone. Forgive us, Lord, where we fall short. Amend what we are. Direct what we shall be so that we can walk in faithfulness, bearing witness to Christ, boasting in his cross and bearing our own crosses, testifying with our lips and with our lives to the beauty of your son and the great salvation that he has accomplished. Lord, as we approach the Lord's Supper, we, we ask that you would comfort us, that you would strengthen us, that you would form us by your grace into a people who boast in the cross and in the cross alone, not, not in anything else. God forbid that we would boast in anything else but your cross, Jesus. Father, work in our time together as we receive your supper. Remind us of the cross. Help us to commune with your son by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.